Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Ken Bruce, oh. leading Radio 2. <laughs> Has there ever been such a fuss it's about fantastic. a GJ leaving any arm of the BBC ever? I know, it's fantastic, isn't it? Nothing <laughs> became his, you know, what's that quote about? Nothing became his career like the leaving of it or whatever. Yeah, that's know. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, like, it's like leaving Radio 2 made him twice as famous as he was by staying at Radio 2. It's absolutely yeah. extraordinary. I suppose it's just the media's or just people's general appetite for um, for sharing their feelings about things like this nowadays. That they become bigger think, stories than ever. Yeah, but didn't you think it was a kind of win-win for him? Because, you know, what happened was Ken Bruce was offered a job, wasn't he, by Greatest Hits Radio, presumably for more, more money. Radio 2 probably thought, great, because it's in their interest to move the old guard, like, Steve Wright, etc., and replace them with younger people for the sake of the image of the, of the of the station. And also, you know, he would have been hard to afford. But anyway, they probably thought, okay, but they've got two options. One is to say, okay, we'll clear your desk out and go now, which looks fantastically, grotesquely disrespectful for someone who's been there since whatever it is, 1986. I mean, he was doing Radio 2 when I was at Smash Hits. It's astonishing, really. Or they say, which they did say, Stay on for another month and, uh, you know, we'll have a big fanfare about it all. And then they realised, of course, within that straight away that he was using that month just to advertise his new show, wasn't he? I don't, to be fair, I don't, I don't listen to him regularly, so I wouldn't know. So I don't think it was necessarily the case that he was consciously advertising his new show. But the fact is the fuss around him the fuss was, around ad- it. was advertising yeah, the new, that new was, show. That was making that it wouldn't necessarily be anything he did. no. Um, no, but so then I, they turned around and said, okay, well, instead of a month, you're going to have to leave this Friday. And so, therefore, he could justifiably put out a slightly wounded tone, yeah. couldn't Wound, he? Wounded is the right word. And, uh, you know, how, how sad that I didn't get the carriage clock and the, yeah. the speech from the managing director or whatever. And a nice bit of, I had a nice bit of cake lined up for Friday. <laughs> yeah, and they whisked it away from under my nose. <laughs> I know, I know. It is. It's. I suppose it's win-win for uh, Radio Two and uh, 
for greatest hits. Although I couldn't help thinking that also at the same time that, you know, thinking about the parlous future of music radio, what appears to be the parlous future of music radio, it's a little bit like two bald men fighting over a comb, as the famous expression <laughs> goes. You know, like, what's the future in this? But I'm sure the future is long enough to see Ken Bruce out and, and yeah. all these all these people. But, you know, in, I don't know, 25, 30 years' time, what's going to be happening with music radio? Have you seen any sign of your offspring listening to music radio? Absolutely none at all, not Just, remotely. And I, I don't think they've never had to know, do it. It's the music that you might be interested in hearing, curated by somebody you might be interested in, but they've, they've got, they're not interested in any of this, you know. Also struck me that the whole Greatest Hits format surely has a very limited uh, time span in itself because, you know, Greatest Hits depends on the notion that everybody at a particular time... Of hits. Uh, yeah, hits. <laughs> it, it depends on hits. And it depends on people listening to those records on the radio and watching those records on things like Top of the Pops at the same time and it being the soundtrack to their lives. You know? So, you know, the, the noughties, the noughties in, 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 will 50-year-olds in whatever it would be, about 15 years' time, will they be listening to a nostalgia programme that's got Hot Chip, Scissor Sisters, Daft Punk, Claxons, Lady Gaga? I, I really don't know because... It, those things just began to evaporate, didn't they? People were not listening to all those things at the same time. So surely greatest hits as a concept is, is itself on the way out. You know, it's true because the media no longer provides a kind of frame for this stuff, does it? Yeah. You know, you won't be able to go back. It often strikes me that, you know, I do, do a lot of research for books. And so, you know, so yesterday I was uh, I was in the library actually and I was looking at the the copy of the Sunday Times for the day after the after the funeral of the Princess of Wales, and there's nothing takes you back to a place and a time like reading an old newspaper or an Absolutely. old magazine, you know, because you don't just read the content, you read the context at the same time. So you read the adverts and you read the juxtapositions between the main story and the story that everybody's forgotten and all that. So it kind of whisks you back. Well, that's going away <laughs> completely. Completely. You know, just st steadily. It's disappearing. That whole notion of kind of frames, you know, let's travel back to what were we playing on the breakfast show in, you know, 1999. It'll be sort of impossible to do that really you know um in the future so but uh, but i'm sure you know grace Stitz will will continue to do well because certainly in the moment you know if 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 radio 2 management are going in there and saying all right here's here's your younger djs and we're not going to play play i don't know what anymore you know Certainly not going to play the tremolos anymore or whatever, right. but we're probably not going to play anything from, anything from the 80s anymore. And it's going to be, as you say, hot chip and the klaxons and so forth. And those are your vegetables and they're good for you. <laughs> I think yes. for a period of time, a lot of people are going to, are going to um, bridle against that. And they will be the ones that are attracted to things like Great Hits Radio. But I kind of, I sort of feel sympathy for the BBC although they do always end up with egg on the face over over these these issues. But they have to kind of move this stuff on, don't they? Well, they do. No, I totally Otherwise, I... people will stay forever because they never used to. Although, to be fair, 
Jimmy Young stayed forever. Yeah, Do you did. remember? Stayed forever. Was there ever, was there, a, you know, a similar fuss when Jimmy Young finally, you know, knocked on the head? I don't think there was. No, but Jimmy Young didn't have a daytime show, did he? So, I mean, I think uh, he did. Well, he did for years. I don't even possibly not at the end. Any. I don't. Oh, think. Okay, Whereas Ken no. Bruce is kind of there. He is at ten o'clock till one or whatever it is. You know, yeah. but uh, it's astonishing. But very difficult for them to know how to spin that. And on that note, uh, in in uh, in in light of of, of, of difficult publicity uh, manoeuvres for for the BBC, I noticed that they've renamed very quietly renamed the John Peel wing of uh, of broadcasting house. Uh, it's now called Zone H. That's and really re- that's got a ring to it, hasn't yes. it? Yes, <laughs> it's really inviting. Yes, whoopee! Let's get a let's zone, get a zone H. And the, yeah, they've rebranded the John Peel stage Woodside, haven't they? Oh, oh that's Glastonbury. That's not the BBC. That's, sorry, that's, that's Glastonbury. That's, they've that's both Glastonbury. done it simultaneously. Uh, simultaneously, yeah. <laughs> and that's because of his, you know, various associations, which of course he he freely admitted, you know, with underage girls. And it just oh, what a difficult thing. And it just struck me that I, I can remember interviewing him in. I think it must have been like 2002, for Word magazine. It was for our first edition of Word. And he was very, very keen to talk about all this stuff. You know, I remember he married a 15-year-old girl in America. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he talked about all his, um, you know, uh, copping off with girls. And to make clear that he now thought this was really, really sordid and he was really, really ashamed of it. And he was warming up, I think, to write uh, an autobiography, which he never did in the end because he started it when he died. But what made me... What made me think? There's always family, you know, that his his oh. wife and his kids. That must be unbelievably oh. difficult, don't you think? Yeah, because John Peel, in, in 2012, when they named that thing, the, the part of the BBC, the John Peel Wing, John Peel was a, a kind of national treasure. It was a saint, saint, a saint, a saint. <laughs> John Peel, Saint John, exactly. He he had absolutely uncritical admiration and to be one of his children or his wife and walk around and you know oh gosh your john peels was your father you know that must have been the most extraordinary thing and for that to go from being a national treasure to being this uh, really slightly awkward and uh, very awkward and, and difficult legacy that must be hard to do with don't you think? it's very hard i think it, it, it two things i thought about this is one it once again indicates the fact that in this day and age in this dna the one thing you know is that is that um, public policies will be called into question, often by quite a small number of people, and and will turn into some kind of social media storm. And one thing you can guarantee is that the body behind it will, in the face of this small blowback on social media, fold up and instantly give in. And yep. nobody does this more than the BBC. Yeah. So if you had the balls to call it the Peel Wing, keep calling it the Peel Wing. You know, when is one of these organisations going to stand up and go, yeah, so, you and who's army? You know what yep. I mean? We decided to do this. But you haven't, they haven't got the nerve for fear. They have not got the nerve. That it indicates that they might somehow endorse or improve. I don't know. Just it's but so the, on the other hand, And the other thing I've got to say is, why are they so keen on naming things after people anyway? You know, I, I even thought this when they changed the name of Western House, which formed you know, the headquarters of Radio Two, to Wogan House in the in the in the light yeah. of the death of, of, of Terry Wogan. There's no scandal attached to to Wogan or any, anything like it. You know, but I, I did think that's a bit 
on a kind of odd thing to yes. do. You know what I mean? It's, it's not that the Beatles, uh, the BBC hasn't traditionally gone in for that kind of thing. Loads of people have, you know, given distinguished service to the BBC and they haven't necessarily had buildings named after them or wings. And uh, if you're going to do those things, you know, just stand behind them. Stand or, behind on the, or on the other hand, don't do them. Yeah. Just don't do them. And, and I'll tell you the, the other thing, move it away from broadcasters. I was thinking about this this morning. You and I are old enough to have seen the reputations of major figures in popular music and popular culture wax and wane and change over the years. The people are the same. The things they've done are the same. But, you know, they, they just, you know, the public view of these things, of these people changes absolutely all the time. And uh, and you kind of have to accept that with popular entertainment. And so, particularly with music, I don't think they should go around naming things to musicians because, like, I don't think they should have loads of honours because I think the honour is our memory of them and how we feel about them, you know, is, is what we carry inside us. It's not what you know, it was recorded on a statue or the name of a building or anything of that nature. It's what you think about them. And particularly with music people and broadcast people, you know, the the memories of John Peel or Terry Wogan or whatever are in you, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They're not something you're going to learn about. Yeah. You know, somebody in 30 years' time is not going to look at the Peel Wing or Wogan House. No, and for most of us, that was that all about? Yeah. That'll have gone by then, probably, you know, because it's in in the memory of people who lived through it. And they don't need any any further memorial. You know, we know what we think about, about those people. And we have a kind of rounded view of them. Don't we? We do. And in that relationship with John Peel for most of us was formed by just listening to his late night radio show. And, and you know, and it's just it's just sad that 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 what he achieved with that and, and the records he played and what an extraordinary broadcast he was. Has that's been you know, that's been affected by Yeah, yeah, no, really absolutely. Is. Yeah. But that but it's it's sullied really by people who don't really remember him. Whereas yeah. people who do remember him, he was never a saint, you know. No, no, never no, nor the opposite. No, not remotely a saint. No, no. And he was the first person to admit that. Absolutely. And he was a really, really complicated guy. And most yeah, of, yeah. I remember in that interview, him telling me two things. Like, uh, one was about his parents. One was that his mum uh, openly preferred his younger brother, Alan. That was her favourite and used to say so repeatedly. And on her deathbed, he tried to give her a little hug and she refused to embrace him. Can you imagine? And his memory, I know, this is what he told me. And his memory of his father... First memory of his father was being, he must have been about, I suppose, five years old, was down the bottom of, well, I think it was probably a drive, uh, quite well off, actually, at the house outside of Liverpool. And he, he was at the end of the road and he saw a motorbike approaching. And there was a soldier in uniform. And the motorbike slowed down, turned left and came into the house. And he ran ahead of the motorbike, shouting to his mum that a strange man was outside. Of course, that was his father. So he came from a very, very complicated emotional setup actually. and i've told you my john peel story many times which was i was with in tokyo with him yeah at, on a kind of bbc week or whatever and uh, there must have been about 10 or 15 of us and on the last night we all went to a disco yeah and there we were we were thousands of miles away from home everybody on the dance floor production staff me 
John Peel's wife or whatever, yeah. who was the only person who couldn't be persuaded to come on the dance floor? Peel, John Peel. John Peel. So self-conscious. He was though. so inhibited. Yeah, he was. Unbelievably. And listen, I've got no room to talk. <laughs> but, you know, I no, thought, but at least you were on that, that dance floor throwing some shapes. Yeah. That is remarkable. Incredible. So John Peel, complicated, John Peel, but also, complicated and, person. And the complications of these th- th- press stories. The There's a story about Glastonbury a couple of days. They announced the lineup for Glastonbury. And I'm sure you saw that, but they've been getting a lot of stick for the fact that at this year's event, 53% of the 55 confirmed acts <laughs> are male and only 43% are non-white artists or groups that include non-white members. Oh, there 53% of the 55 acts confirmed are male. I mean, he's absolutely crazy. Actually, I think this is really good publicity for Glastonbury because Glastonbury has always been incredibly inclusive and made a real effort to, 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 to try and make sure everybody's, uh, you know, every, every base is covered, you know. But dating that, you can't win, can you? You cannot win. I see Guns N' Roses are uh, headlining, aren't they? And uh, judging by the last picture I saw of him, I think 53% of the talent is represented by Axel Rose. Axel Rose, I know. The man is piled on the pounds. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. He's losing the inch war. <laughs> he's, he's watching his waist. It's lucky because it's out there where he can see it. That's right. <laughs> the Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So we were talking the other day about uh, you two opening this Splendid new Las Vegas venue called the Sphere. Is that what it's called? That's right, the Sphere. Yeah, Sphere. And they've announced, they confirmed that they are doing it, and they're going to do Actung Baby because it's what is it? Thirty years? Is that right? Yeah, it would have come out in ninety three. Yes, that's right. That's thirty years. Uh, But the odd thing is that they they will not be joined by Larry Mullen Jr. Because he's 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 got a back problem or something. He's had to, he's he has he's had there. back surgery. That's right. He's not going to be fit. And, uh, it's a weird one. That is that is a weird one. That's like Jimmy Nickel joining the Beatles on stilts. That is, you know what I mean. <laughs> For younger listeners, when was this mark? When Jimmy Nickel joined? Sixty four. Sixty five. Was it? Maybe sixty five. Maybe sixty sixty four or sixty five. Yeah. So the Beatles were due to tour. Amsterdam? Okay. Well, I think uh, it was Australia because it was when Ringo had the tonsils uh, out, wasn't it? Okay. So Ringo had a, he was in the hospital, so he couldn't do the gigs. So they got in a guy called Jimmy Nickel, who, whose life was utterly changed. It was for the, the worse, that, actually. Absolutely. Oh, for the God. Worst. I mean, years later, he would turn up at Beatles conventions hoping that people might buy his signature. I mean, it's not good, really. No, a very good chapter in Craig Brown's book about Fantastic chapter. All about, about, all about yeah. Jimmy Nickel. Anyway, he was only there for what two weeks or something yeah. like that. But um, but this guy Bram, uh, what's he called? Bram Vandenberg is yeah, going to be Dutch there for for the whole place, yeah. run. It's an odd old business, isn't it? Because wasn't it Bono who said? And if it wasn't, it really should have been because it's a terribly good line. He said that you know fifty percent of the value when people come to see you. Is, they, is when you go on stage and they just go, oh, they're all there. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's a really good point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's one part of your life that doesn't need repairing. Yeah. Is, the, is this bit that you formed an association with 
when you're 15 or 16 years old and it's still going on 40 years later. And in in their case, I mean, it, it, it's a long time. It's it? a long this time. This is a group that I think it's fantastic. It's a wonderful story, actually. This is a group that nearly all at school together. They've been in that group, what, 45 years? Long there's, no, there's no other case. There's no other case. No, ZZ Top was probably the longest, uh, longest lineup. But uh, obviously that's not happened anymore. But, at, um, you know, but ZZ Top didn't play anything like the same number of kids. No, no. But I think it's interesting because they're, they've got two options, haven't they? One is that they play, which they've decided to do, play, they honour this contract because the reputational damage of breaking the contract and backing out now uh, would be, they think, very bad, very harmful, and they don't want to let these people down. And also, there's a there's a lot of money involved. In the a lot of money, huge a amount of money. A very lucrative few gigs. We were talking about the other day. We thought there was somewhere in the region of eighty or ninety million dollars. Well, it, I, we might be we, exaggerating, we, we but sure, it's but a lot of money. Yes, and they haven't gigs. they haven't toured since two thousand nineteen. Yeah. but the other option is that they don't do it because what they are is not authentically U two, and U two no other group could stand for with the possible exception of, of Bruce Bruce, the idea of authenticity and it's genuine, isn't it? It's moral fiber. And, you know, so the, the option is that, that a lot of people are, 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 are you know, are, are really and could, can't believe the fact that it's not you too. It's not them themselves, you know, but surely the option is if you, if that's the case and you don't think that constitutes a real you too, then don't go. I mean, it's up to you. It's right. I mean, right. just simply don't buy a ticket. Don't sit there and complain about it. I mean, if you want to see you two wait a year and then you two will be back again. But just don't don't endorse this and don't give any of your money towards this particular project. I would have thought. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So two of my personal favorite musicians sadly died this week. Wayne Shorter, at the age of 89. I, I know. And... Um, and David Lindley, uh, at the age of 75. David Lindley, who was on Whistle Test once with us. Do you remember? Oh, with his band, was he? We came on, no, I think he came on to, to, to demonstrate some kind of equipment. It was some extraordinary thing. And oh, I'm pretty really? sure you interviewed him. My memory's a bit vague, 1984-ish. <laughs> oh, really? God, I don't remember. Don't remember. That. I think you, maybe you were, maybe, maybe I invented <laughs> Maybe if anybody... Excuse me. If anybody knows who Mark Eleanor or I were talking to in 1984, please get in touch. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And, uh, and help us. Yeah. Because we don't remember. And this does frequently happen with whistle tests. People send, send you an email saying... I was watching you talking to Santo, and I go, no, no, no memory. Never met didn't meet them, never met them in my life. And then they send me a link, and I thought, sure enough, who is that bloke talking to? David Linder, whoever. It's me. Anyway, um, Wayne Shorter, so 89, you know, member of Art Blakey's group, and and then and then the kind of second Miles Davis quintet, right through the bitches yeah. brew. Uh, you know, so saw a lot of change. You know, he, he remembered when it was all fields round there. Yeah, 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 yeah. He saw a huge amount of change, and then and then joined. Well, started Weather Report with um, Joe Zawinhall. and I was thinking about Weather Report. I love Weather Report. You know, probably not very fashionable. I love Weather Report. I got it's a beautiful, all, beautiful noise. I got all the records. It's a beautiful noise. I saw them a couple of times, and uh, I was thinking about them today. And thinking how significant was the fact that they were called Weather Report, not the Joe Zawinil Wayne Shorter band, or which would have been the kind of standard yeah. jazz way of doing it, wasn't it? You know, it was it was in it was deciding to call themselves Weather Report that made them a kind of jazz rock group, didn't it? Yeah, rather, yeah. rather than a jazz group. It's that whole idea of a kind of abstract name rather than something that's based on the, on the names of the, the musicians, which kind of carried through into the way that they performed, really, that it wasn't so much so-and-so does a solo and then so-and-so does a solo, although there was a certain amount of that going on. You know, it was, it was to do with the kind of the joint noise. And you, you couldn't get away from the fact Joe Zawinul was clearly the kind of busier member of the leadership. You know, Joe Zawinul composed loads of things. And so I've got all these Weather Report albums, and they're all the same. They all begin with three Joe Zawinul tunes, and then halfway through second side, Wayne Shorter pops up with one, you know. And, and within the credits, they always go, Joe Zawinul, piano, electric piano, you know, Oberheim, Moog sympathizer, you know, an endless list of, of technical uh, uh, pieces of equipment that Joe had uh, decided to uh, exercise himself on. And then you go down the list and you go, Wayne Shorter, saxophone. Saxophone. That's it. That's all I do. Yeah. And uh, and I've specialized in it. I I'm very, very, very good. And But he's just his tone. It's so, tone is so important with a, with a soloist, isn't it? It's yeah. more important than anything at all. And I was thinking about this. Do you remember? I don't remember. I don't know if you remember when your when your children were born. If your experience was the same as ours, well, they used to they used to put all the babies in in a in a little room off the ward. Yeah, and and they'd say, you know, if your baby cries, you have to go and get it and feed it, whatever. 
And the new mothers would invariably say, how will I know if it's my baby? And then after a few days, they knew it was their yes. baby. <laughs> they could yeah. tell. Well, I felt like that about Wayne Short's sex. Brilliant. <laughs> you know, you know, as soon as I heard it, hearing anything, you know, Steely Dan's Asia. So I was listening to that just the other day. It's fantastic. Joni it? Mitchell's Paprika Plains, these things. You know, he would just appear as if through a fog. Yeah. And you go, my God, that's Wayne Shaw. Oh, there was a lovely review in the in the Guardian by Richard Williams. Did you read the obit by Richard no, Williams? No, I didn't. Oh, no. I just scribbled down what he said. He said, shorter saxophone could materialise like a wraith of pale smoke through a door left ajar, curling gracefully around the musical furniture before evaporating as mysteriously as it had appeared. That is absolutely indelible after image. Isn't that wonderful? That's absolutely true. It is, because you listen to, particularly, uh, I think Asia's a really good example. It comes with that soaring saxophone. It's near the yeah. end, isn't it? Right at the very end. It's fantastic. And I was listening to Paprika Plains. And that's amazing too, because it's him and Jacko Pastorius kind of interweaving. And he can be really soft and then he can be really stinging. And it's an extraordinary change of sound. Oh, it was just wonderful. Absolutely yeah, wonderful. Fantastic. The Mingus album too. It's fantastic. Yeah. And David Lindley, it's interesting because you can't, there we are talking about Wayne Shorter's sax hours. I can't think of any particular solos that David Lindley played because David Lindley was, you know, he's one of those session uh, players who wasn't the key instrument. So he wasn't the keyboard, he wasn't the bass, wasn't drums, wasn't the guitar, whatever. He was embroidery, really, wasn't he? You know, he played every imaginable stringed instrument. Absolutely. The banjo, lap steel, mandolin. And he could play Alan, them at the age of about five, apparently. You know, yeah, he was, incredible. He was a child prodigy on yeah. absolutely anything like that. So he was just brought in to add a texture and a tone and uh, to make things sound kind of rootsy. It's interesting, all the people he worked with, I was looking at, I mean, obviously you know about the stuff that he was in the member of the section, was he? The Mellow Mafia, who uh, played a lot of the arrangements and stuff for, you know, Jackson Brown and um, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and Ray Cooder. But uh, also he was on records by people, people like Tanita Tickerham and the Bangles and Howard Jones and Belinda Carlisle. So he was he was brought in to add that particular note of kind of rootsiness, wasn't he? The first time I was aware of him, <clears throat> probably, is, well, I don't know if it's the first time I was aware of him, but it's this first time he, he came to Britain in 1971, because he'd been a member of Kaleidoscope. He didn't mean, and I don't think that records even came out over here. But he came, he, he ended up in Britain in 1971. And when Terry Reid plays at the Gla at Glastonbury in 1971, yeah. that famous footage, which is captured as part of... Is he in that lineup? Of, of course he is. He is the lap oh, yeah. steel player. Yes, of course. You know, that's the coolest looking band you've ever seen in your life. Terry Reid and uh, Alan White on drums. And I, I, I can't remember the name of the player. And then sitting down, playing what what he called lap steel was David Lindley, in the, in that great Terry Reid band that made River, the record that they made, yeah. and didn't come out for about two years, so missed its moment. But that was absolutely extraordinary. And then he appeared. Most memorably for me, indelibly actually for me, on the second and the third, and I think the fourth Jackson Brown albums. Yeah, they've for every man and um, and um, 
was the one afterwards? Oh, God, I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> Everybody out there listening to it going, it's called so-and-so, I can't think. <laughs> anyway, the second of the third Jackson Brown albums, where he completely wraps himself around Jackson Brown's vocals all the way through those records. And I, I, I yield to no one in my admiration for Jackson Brown. I love Jackson Brown. But Jackson Brown would never have been anything without David Lindley. It's David Lindley who just provides the kind of emotional quickening in those records. It's David Lindley that makes those records stirring in a way that most singer-songwriters are not, really. It's extraordinary, the drama in those records. And, and so much of that came from David Lindley. And if you ever saw them play, which I did, I think on more than one occasion, there they were, two guys, you know, same age, probably quite similar backgrounds or whatever. And Jackson Brown would appear on stage. And Jackson Brown was the kind of person, if he just emerged from a, a, an air crash, he would come out looking like Cary Grant. You know, he just, he just had that. He just always looked perfect. <laughs> he did. His David left in place. Yeah. David Lindley, on the other hand, could have come out from three days with a, an army of stylists, and he would still have looked still like an unmade bed. Yeah. <laughs> the two of them. So there's a, a whistle test clip of the two of them together. Just the two of him playing, Lindley playing the violin, Jackson Brown and Nick playing the piano. And the difference between them is absolutely extraordinary. Okay. Jackson couldn't help looking like that, you know, and David Lindley couldn't help couldn't looking, help looking like, like that. <laughs> and, uh, and when he made his solo album, uh, I was looking at his first solo album. If you've got a copy of his first solo album, go and have a look at it. Because there he is. He's, <laughs> he's wearing a kind of blanket, a kind of poncho <laughs> with this goofy <laughs> look on his face, <laughs> this kind of mad hair. As if he's looking at the photographer saying, God, do your best. I dare you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do your best. Can you put a filter me? on this? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But he, he popped up on all kinds of things, but nothing more memorably than those records with Jackson Brown. And he, of course, he got back together with Jackson Brown, didn't he? And about 10 years ago, they made, um, made a record in, in a live album called Love is Strange. I think they made it in Barcelona, certainly in front of a Spanish-speaking audience. And, uh, and they played it very much acoustically for its kind of Spanish feeling, you know. Yeah. And uh, I just thought he was, he was wonderful, David Lindley. Absolutely wonderful. And if you've never heard the second two Jackson Brown albums, go and correct that... Uh, Correct that immediately. And also just go and look at the sheer quantity of recordings that he did. It's, uh, it is absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? Hundreds of records and a huge variety of people. It's amazing. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. So a very interesting story about Della Soul has just appeared. And Della Soul, two of them, very sorry, sadly, Trugoy could, couldn't play the Grammys uh, because he was too ill and subsequently, in fact, died. But the other two played the Grammys and did a kind of version of um, Buddy from Three Feet High and Rising. And they're 
material, their, all their songs have now finally, after all this time, and those records first came out, I think, about 1989, been cleared for digital for streaming. Streaming, haven't they? And I think that's a really interesting story because, you know, the, I think there was a court case in 1991, that is a long time ago, when the Turtles yes. sued them for sampling, I think, a 12-second slowed-down fragment of a Turtles song and sued them and obviously won this case for a large amount of money, at which point it became obvious that they were going to have to clear all the samples in the yeah. songs. And these samples, are, there are just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Uh, 200, and, 200 they had to clear. 200 samples. And uh, there's one, I think, on Cool Breeze on the Rocks, which has more than 20 fragments in less than a minute of different <laughs> tracks by Public Enemy, Jefferson Starship, Africa Bambata. And so they had to employ a specialist to go through all this. Uh, and it's been an entire year's work to get all these samples identified and then get clearance rules. So firstly, can you imagine how much that must have cost? Uh, secondly, can you imagine how much revenue they must think is, is, is likely to derive from this stuff being available to be able to justify that cost? And thirdly, are they kind of guinea pigs in all this? And I mean, why aren't other bands having the same kind of problem? Well, they, maybe they are behind the scenes. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, people got a lot wiser about this stuff, didn't they? I think there was a feeling in the early days, I'll put it on there, it'll be, it'll be fine. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. We'll pay people if they come along. Um, but, but subsequently, it became so much a part of the business, people realised they had to have... They have to have somebody in there pre-clearing material. Yeah. And I suppose when you look at the cost, I suppose it's a one-off cost for a lifetime of use, isn't it? Because now you're looking at what De La Soul or anybody might earn in streaming. Yeah. You're, think, you're thinking about a period of 10, 20, 30 years, aren't you? you know? Yeah. Because uh, the market grows all the time. Um. And it, it was interesting. I was reading an interview with a woman who um, she has a company who just she is the queen of clearances, um, and she has a company just dedicated to doing this. You know, and, and and about how it's how you can reach an accommodation with anybody, provided they're being realistic. But if you pick up the phone and saying, "I'm looking to clear something for," you know, I don't know anybody anybody really big. You know, people are seeing dollar signs. Huge dollar signs. And, yeah. and therefore you can't have a sensible conversation with them at all. Um, but it was it, it it's very interesting. And um it what's interesting is also a few years ago, Della Soul gave this material away, didn't they? On the internet. You could download it for a short period of time. And then the record company or somebody said, you have no right to do that. Absolutely. But by then, by then, they're already... Well, two lanes already They've already given it away. But people have probably forgotten where, what they did with it, you know. Um, but it must have really affected their, their kind of, their legacy, really, because they're, they're not talked about that much, are they? Tell us all. And you think though, just how significant those records were. Three Feet High and Rising, when it came out, was a major, major statement, wasn't it? it can I just say, I have one big problem with Della Soul, and I, I love them when, I, when they're lovable, but I'm sorry, the skits, the skits, I can't <laughs> deal with the skits. 
I get, you know, I, I read about this last week that they're coming out streaming. So I get out my CDs, Della Solo's Dead or whatever, and I just immediately think, oh, for God's sake, there's a leaden joke at the beginning of this yes. before you even get to any music. Yeah. You know, there is never any good reason for that, is there? No. And how quickly the, uh, the, the, the fun evaporates from something like that. Heard once is still it's painful, but heard more than once. Oh my God. Well, that's certainly true for me. I don't know. How, how would our, how would our sons feel about this, Mark? Because they're more of the De La Soul generation, aren't they? Do they probably quite, they quite happily rerun the skit in their head? Do they? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's like you and me rerunning. We can quite happily listen to Gorilla by the Monzo Dog Band endlessly and listen to to the whole of the intro and the outro. <laughs> well, well, yeah, but even the kind of little the things that are in between the tracks. The um, oh god, what's that track called? Um, where substantial, it only becomes apparent after a while that he's in a is in a at a urinal. Oh god, yes. And he says, "I see you have the same trouble with your trousers as, as I do." <laughs> <laughs> Makes me laugh. All those years later, there's, there's a wonderful one. Is it on? Is it on Gorilla's shirt? The track shirt, where he goes out with a with a, a, a microphone and a long lead, and goes out onto the road outside the studio, and just interviews people about the kind of shirts they're wearing. Do you remember that one? This yeah. goes, "I'm all for the short shirt." He says, "Well, you're very stylish, certainly." It's absolutely. You see, you see that we're no, laughing you do, about. No, you're right. We're, we're laughing at the same thing. We're, we're laughing about thing. that. I bet your boy and my boy would similarly laugh at that pillar. So know. you know, even years later. They're right. Anyway, wrong. what else have we been doing this week? We talked to uh, we talked to Michael, Michael Craig. Uh, who's written? He's written a book. What's his book called? I haven't got it in front of it's me. It's called Reach for the Stars. Reach for the Stars, and it's about the era of pop music. That I suppose, well, began with the Spice Girls, yes. Yeah. And, and it kind of ends with the advent of the TV talent shows, doesn't it? So it's 1996 to 2006. I've and he's got right. really I've good got theories. As yeah. Really good theories about why television kind of kills pop music. And also really, really good theories about why the Spice Girls were successful, I thought. He had lots of reasons for for that one of which was that they sang about friendship. So it was really clever. They didn't sing about relationships. They sang about friendship. Nope. And so nope. girls, you know, 14 year old girls would think, well, that's it. I'm in a little gang. It's all about being in with the gang. And I'm more interested in that at the moment than I'm being besotted with some bloke. So that was really interesting. Also, See, friendship amazing- group, friendship groups also, regardless, leave aside the blokes thing, the boyfriends things, you know, you, 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 you've got sisters and I've uh, daughters and so forth. Yeah. And friendship groups with girls are far more important than they are with boys. Far more powerful. Enormously important. And, and so... They were always in a group before my sister, were always in a group of four girls. <laughs> a, B and C then fell out with D. <laughs> yes. And D was back in and C was out. <laughs> absolutely. And C was out and B was suddenly yeah, very unpopular. And you think, what's happening? And then suddenly my sister would be out and she'd be miserable. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, I can't keep track of it. It's this. not yes. funny when you're going through it at all, even if you're no, going no, through it just as a parent or a brother no, or whatever. No, no, no. <laughs> so hard. But, uh, but the Spice Girls were probably the first people... To sing about that. 
And it's such a powerful thing in the, in the lives of... I think of that's probably true, because you think the, the Supremes and all that, was, they were girl gangs, but they're mostly sung about boys. Boys, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's... Also, a, there's an amazing story in there, which we won't give away, okay. but it's about, it's about Donatella Versace asking for a group to go to... Uh, sending a private plane, if I had to pick them up. Getting it, in, getting in it wrong, getting the name wrong by yeah, one letter. Wrong, getting the wrong group by one letter. We'll leave you. And it, if that, you can't work out who that is, you really should listen to the um, the chat because it's very good. Uh, we also talked to Lucy O'Brien about her book about Karen Carpenter, uh, Carpenter called Lead Sister. That's good. Uh, the Karen Carpenter story is... Uh, Karen Carpenter's parents who pretty much invented the concept of helicopter parenting. <laughs> yes. Oh, my Lord, there's some stories in that. It's extraordinary. And also a lot of really good stuff about what a singer needs to survive. It's, it's, it's really worth listening to. Very definitely. Very definitely. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.